Welcome to the Pursuit of Wellbeing podcast. My name's Maria Brosnan. I'm the founder of Pursuit and your host for the show. This podcast is dedicated to providing wellbeing information, inspiration, and support for teachers, leaders, and school staff around the world. My guest today is Laura McInerney. Laura is the co-founder of TeacherTap, the daily survey app that asks over 8,000 teachers each day what they want, need, think, and feel. She was formerly the editor of Schools Week. She's currently one of The Guardian's education columnists and taught for six years in London state schools. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Great to be with you today. Firstly, uh, a good place to start would be for our listeners, especially our international listeners, a special welcome to you. But could you tell us what is TeacherTap? Yep. So TeacherTap is an app. It's on your phone. And every single day, it asks three questions to thousands of teachers, mostly across England, although actually the broader UK is included as well. So there are people from Wales and Scotland on there. We've also got quite a few pockets in other international countries as well. So uh, TeachTap Netherlands is quite big, TeachTap Flanders, TeachTap Ghana. Um, and then there are other countries around the world where you can download it. So you can look on the App Store and see if it's available to you. The app pings once a day asks three questions and then the most important bit once you've asked them is you get to see the answers from yesterday's questions and in doing so as a teacher it gives you an insight into what's happening in schools elsewhere because one of the problems of being a teacher is really you spend most of the day on your own you're in your class yes you've got all the pupils with you but you don't always get to see what's happening in other classrooms you very rarely get to see what's happening in other schools and increasingly now we're able to look in different countries as well and then after the results there's a little bit of gamification and you get some badges some scores and we also give a daily two to five minute read which is just us pointing you to a blog that could be about your subject on certain days or it might be if you're a primary teacher about something to do with primary or otherwise a lot of the time it's really generic stuff well-being might be related to leadership might be related to how you give out homework really a lot of the time we look at tiny 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 aspects of school life that other people just simply miss out and I think one of the great benefits of that is, as you say, that it can feel quite lonely being a teacher, especially now when you don't have the benefit of just that the atmosphere in the staff room that you can go and have a cup of tea and chat with people. Are you finding that that's helping kind of break down that those feelings, perhaps of isolation or loneliness or... That's definitely why when we started TeachTap, that was part of what we were thinking. So um, myself, I was a teacher for six years. My co-founder, Professor Becky Allen, also a teacher. Then Alex Weatherall, who built the app for us, uh, he was a teacher as well. So we've all been in that situation where we've been thinking to ourselves, am I normal? Is it normal that students are misbehaving on a Friday afternoon? And we know now from TeachTap that it is. So we often ask on a Friday afternoon how behaviour went in your last lesson. And especially if you're a new teacher, over 50% of new teachers will say that their final lesson on a Friday was disrupted by poor behaviour. But actually around 30 to 35% of teachers on any given Friday have that problem as well. So it's really good for finding out, are you normal? But um, this year, obviously, we're finding out, well, what's not normal, but kind of is. So yes, in terms of things like the staff room, we know that that people eating their lunch in the staff room has dropped by a third. 
in many cases, that's because the school has either taken over the staff room and they're having to use it as another space, or you can't sit together anymore. It's not the same way of chatting with one another. And at least with TeachTap, I mean, I don't think TeachTap is any substitute actually for that kind of face-to-face chat in school. I think that's really important. But at the very least, once a day, you do get to engage with other professionals. You get to have a voice and you get to see what else is going on. And we know from lots of teachers, they do find that really valuable. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what else, Laura, can you tell us? What's your current um, take on, say, things like well-being, anxiety levels? What, what are you finding most recently about that? We're recording this in October, but I'm sure it's a, it's a good snapshot of how people are feeling. Sure. So weirdly, about a year ago on Teach Tap, so September 2019, we decided that most Tuesdays we would be asking a question as part of a project to find out about people's workplace anxiety. And there were things that we wanted to look at over the shape of the school year. Of course, as it happened, the school year went quite strange. About March of 2020, that's when we get lockdown. And so we carried on asking that question every Tuesday. and We're still asking it reasonably regularly now. And we're able to see how workplace anxiety changed over time. Now, what's really interesting is up until that point in time, you had head teachers and classroom teachers, whether in private or state sector, roughly moving along at about the same rate. People with very, very high anxiety was quite rare. And we do know, especially for head teachers, although they do often have high stress levels, they quite like a bit of that stress. Stress isn't always bad. Stress can be something that is is actually quite positive. It can make you better at your job. It can make you feel like you've achieved things at the end of the day. So there was a group who had quite high levels of anxiety, but it was consistent and it wasn't necessarily negative. We get to lockdown and it just goes through the roof, that anxiety rate, in particular for head teachers. It then came down throughout the lockdown period for most classroom teachers, unless they were teaching online live lessons. Mm -hmm. Online live lessons are really scary for teachers. And we saw teachers in the private sector who particularly had this as a thing they were asked to do with very high levels of anxiety. We tick along again until you get to the point where schools reopen. And at that point, actually, most teachers kind of even out. They go back to roughly where they were before. But the head teachers, they shoot up in anxiety. And the head teachers have basically sat at very high levels of anxiety since June. It hasn't really gone back down again. Obviously, it sort of trailed off in the middle in the summer a little, um, but results didn't help. And then it goes back up again and it's still very, very high. We are hearing teachers saying that they're exhausted. Last Friday, for example, we asked at the end of a school week, you know, how, how early would you be going to sleep? And the number of people who said they would be having an early nap or would be asleep before 10 p.m. was really high. So, teachers are exhausted. That said, We've also asked the question most weeks, are you enjoying schools or did you enjoy your week? And, you know, the vast majority of teachers up in the 80% range do enjoy their week. They do enjoy their work and they seem to enjoy it much more than being sat at home. This idea that teachers were very happy because their anxiety was low at home isn't true. They really desperately wanted to get back to school. And when we gave them the choice, we said next year, same salary, same conditions, everything. If you could work from home uh, all the time, you could work from home part and part, or you could be in school all the time. The vast, vast majority picked in school all the time. 
That's we like a bit of stress, but not too much. Well, yeah, it, it can really give us some energy. There's, it, it can inspire us and motivate us as long as it's not too much. Absolutely. I had a lovely guest on last week, actually, Beth Kelly, and she's a psychotherapist and talking about the, the, the range that we work within. And there is a healthy range of stress. And if it gets too much, we tip into feeling anxious or overly stressed. And if, it's, if we don't have enough, we can feel lethargic or... Um, or depressed even. So there's, there's, a, there's a healthy range in which we can operate well. So it's good to, good to see that. There's also, I think, something important about coping mechanisms. And, um, and there, are, there are a range of different things that matter. One of my biggest concerns was we've often asked a question at the end of the week or on any given day, we'll say, imagine you've had a bad day. Maybe you really have. This evening, how would you cheer yourself up? And there's a big list of things that you can do, have a bath, talk to friends and so on. And we did see at the beginning of lockdown that the alcohol option was really ticking upwards. And in particular, for those in those anxious leadership positions, it, it really rocketed up. Now, that's, that's a concern. Again, I'm not going to say that anybody is a major source of concern if they've had a really bad day and they go home for a glass of wine. But actually, in a period like lockdown, where our access to maybe friends and family is more limited, the things that we might do to take our mind off things, going to the gym, might not be possible anymore, then it's really, really even more difficult to deal with those day-to-day lives. So how people are building their coping mechanisms in, whether that's going for a walk, um, whether it's you know reading a good book, whatever it can be, I think that's been something that people have had to really try and work towards during this term. And I'm seeing lots of teachers being very conscientious about where they put their energy, because if you burn it all up, all term and you don't have any downtime because weekends are just really boring and there's nowhere to go, this isn't going to be sustainable for a year. And it is a real marathon, this. It is a slow disaster. It's not a quick one. It's not a quick bounce back. This is a slow crisis. So we've got to do constant recoveries. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. In fact, I'm writing a book on that right now. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us some more? Yes. Well, it's called The Pursuit of Sleep for Teachers and School Leaders, Educators. And exactly, we talk exactly about that, about coping mechanisms and how to pace yourself. And because if you can't sleep well at night, it's it's rarely just you put your head on your pillow and you don't fall asleep. It's what happens all throughout the day that leads to that point and and the coping mechanisms you employ all throughout the day. So we've got, I think we're currently at 104, but I think we're going to try and reduce those, but look at different ways of coping all throughout the day. But it's a, it's a critical point to acknowledge now. Otherwise, we, we're just hitting the wall and burnout and exhaustion is a real crisis. And, uh, and looking at your blog, Laura, uh, about head teacher anxiety. I'd like to just drill down on, on that a bit more because the, the numbers of head teachers looking to leave the profession is extremely worrying. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you think those those factors kind of marry together? Yep, we always have to be a bit cautious on the on the statistics around whether or not people want to leave their job because when people say they want to leave their job, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to leave their job. But we have been asking throughout, um, since the lockdown period, throughout the throughout it, about whether people want to leave. So has the current crisis made you more likely to increase your hours, stay in the job, 
or decrease your hours or leave the job. And we have seen head teachers increase quite dramatically since the return this September in terms of the numbers who say they are now going to be more likely to leave the job. And the fact that it's gone up the same question over that period suggests to me there is now a genuinely higher level of head teachers looking to see where else they can go. And in a time of mass unemployment, as we're heading into, typically you could think to yourself, well, teachers don't always have other equally well-paid good options later in their career. So that will trap them in. But we know from other teacher tap data that actually a lot of head teachers are in their 50s. That's the average age of a head. And a lot of teachers in their 50s, particularly in the North, have already paid off their mortgages. They have partners who are often much better earners than they are. Their children are more likely to be leaving or left home. And so their economic concerns are not the same as when you're looking at people leaving the profession at, say, 30 and 31. They are often in a position where their living costs are low. Their partner is able to cross-subsidize, particularly for female teachers, and therefore the money isn't as important to them as you might think, and actually their well-being their ability to sleep at night, as you've just talked about, is absolutely imperative. And especially, I think, when you've got older parents and you start to think to yourself about the fact that, you know, this life is finite. It doesn't last forever. And that yeah. often comes home to people, I think, really, really hard at times like this. People are going to look and say, I just don't think it's worth it. Now, there will be enough teachers behind them. We're not going to end up with a mass shortage, I don't think, because we've got lots of new people coming into the profession. We've got quite a young profession overall. Country's average age of teachers in the UK is very low. So people will rise up and take over. But what we'll, what we'll lose is the wisdom. Yeah. And we will lose a generation who, being that little bit older, are often that little bit calmer little bit wiser, often not quite so concerned about making the money and so on and so forth. And that brings a diversity to the workforce that if we lose it will be a massive shame. Um, and, you know, and not to, to mention the fact that, that the health of people whose anxiety is very high in and of itself has long-term consequences for their own life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and do you have any insights on what would, what would shift this? What, what would help those head teachers that are feeling this incredible strain and stress as you've, if you've, as you've described since June? I mean, God, that's un completely unsustainable. But what would help them? Do you have any insights on that, Laura? I suppose the thing we know that doesn't help um, is the weeks where we saw some very particular peaks and we, we couldn't quite work out what they were because they weren't aligned with government announcements. So often if there's a particular government announcement, then it can be a particular problem. What we found was it was where the media on that, that day had a leak of a report that they said was coming out from the government in a few days time. And what we think is happening is it's the level of uncertainty. It's the not knowing. You often see the announcements cause a shoot up in anxiety and then it comes back down again quite quickly. Whereas that week where you've got people knowing that something bad is coming, but it's not come yet and they don't know exactly what it's going to be, then that's when the anxiety just stays very, very high. Now, we can't go back in time, and I'm not sure that the government can pull itself together enough to be very, very clear on its messaging, but that is the thing that has caused a lot of the uncertainty and the anxiety. And what's difficult is how do you 
How do you get that back again? I think there's probably a role for governors of schools here, especially the chair of governors, to be working with their heads and reminding them that they're doing well, that actually the messages just need to be clear to the school, to the school community and internally consistent that no head teacher can possibly meet every single one of the conflicting demands that they've had placed on them and keeping things in perspective. But that's so much easier to say than to do when you're currently in schools being faced with a parent who wants you <laughs> wants you to make things more strict and another one who thinks you're oppressing their child's human rights. And those are very, very difficult situations for people to be in. Yes, extraordinarily difficult. And yeah, my, my heart, our, our hearts go out to them because how do you square that circle when the, the whole, there is so much polarisation on these views on, on what we should be doing, what we could be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. It just becomes so difficult to manage that. The best heads that I've seen doing this, um, and this isn't through TeachTap, I guess it's through conversations, particularly for the journalism. Um, the best heads that I've seen have, have worked out that this will be a constant recovery. So this isn't a case of how do we get back to normal. It's a case of at any moment in time working out what the smallest, biggest improvement you can make is. And what I mean by that is there are only small things that are within your control, but they could make people feel quite different. Um, there's a head teacher, John Hardy, of a, a school up in Darlington. And for example, his staff don't have their staff room anymore because the windows are all open. They're freezing cold a lot of the time. So they can't get hot drinks at break because they can't get to the staff room and they're cold. So he has got a tea trolley. He's employed, you know, somebody from the canteen to go around and make sure that those teachers are getting hot drinks. And he said, you know, one thing they're looking at is they might go for soup with the students in future so that the students at their break time can also have a hot soup. Now imagine being a member of staff in that school. You're very anxious. And then on top of it, you can't even have a cup of tea, which culturally is actually quite an important part of the day. And so what he's done there is a small thing, but it's a big improvement. It helps with the recovery and the well-being right now. But what he's not done is he's not promised anybody he's solving the pandemic or that all learning is going to be back on track by tomorrow. But you know, you can take care of this one thing right now and then move forwards from there. There was another head teacher at the same as the Schools Northeast Conference. Maura Reagan has talked about performance management in school. There's still an expectation that this will happen. But is it realistic that you can give everybody all these different targets? And instead, she's marshaled people behind one set of goals for everybody. And those will be the targets for the year. And if they can achieve those together, then actually that matters. So I think realigning the mission, making it realistic, but the smallest, biggest improvements is what can make quite a big difference at this point in time. Exactly, exactly. And they're wonderful insights. And I think that Head teachers that I've spoken to and engaged with are also saying um, the more we can be in alignment in our in our view across the SLT and not be buffeted around as much by individual requests from parents or families, etc. And we have a clear vision of what we're doing in this school and try and bring some certainty in this in this. Uh, chaotic time and not be buffeted around uh, as much as they possibly can be. That seems to be helping as well. So, What else can you tell us, Laura, in terms of practical things? There are some ideas that you mentioned before we got started about best friends at school. Can you tell us more about that? Yep. So there is a, a question uh, that Gallup does in its polls around um, 
whether or not you have a best friend at work. And in many, many, many industries, this is seen as the question which has the highest predictive validity in terms of whether or not you're likely to leave your job. So we often ask teachers, do you have a best friend at work? And we found over the three or four years now that we've been asking the question, it's very high. Um, uh, Lots of teachers do say they have a best friend at work. And it's one of the reasons why I worry about things like staff not being able to go to the staff room or not being able to socialize after work. We once did a finding uh, the very early days where we asked about people going to the pub together on a Friday and we found that teachers in outstanding schools were more likely to go to the pub together. Now we think this is in part to do with the number of outstanding schools in London and it being easier for people to go to the pub in London because they get public transport home. Um, they're also slightly younger. So there's all, there's all kinds of variables, but I've often thought it would be worth the EEF doing a randomized control trial, perhaps with some pub vouchers uh, to see actually, can you do school improvement by people going to coffee shops together or hanging out restaurants. We know that quite a lot of teachers go on holiday together. I think it was between about eight and 10% of teachers in a half term go on holiday really? with each other. So yeah, it's, it, it's important stuff. And um, I'm not a naturally massively sociable person. When I was teaching, I was very, very focused on my work. But thankfully, I had a head of department who was just brilliant and you know brought me Jaffa cakes and cups of tea if I was crying and I honestly think that she kept me in the job I was there six years and I think she kept me there in big part because I felt as if there was somebody on my side so the ability for staff to socialize to have friends to feel looked after is really really important overall for both teacher retention but in part because it's important for well-being oh gosh I couldn't agree more and and for those people like you described yourself that wasn't particularly sociable, but just to have another person that you feel that they've got your back, uh, you don't have to be, you know, I think to offer people options feels like the best way forward. But, yeah. but I love that idea of the best friend in school and how, how do we cultivate that now? Well, she, I mean, Sarah Greaves is the teacher and, you know, she made sure early on she worked out what biscuits I liked and it was Jaffa cakes. And so whenever anything went wrong, she would appear with Jaffa cakes. And I often think if you can do nothing else for a new member of staff, particularly new teachers who do struggle with behaviour and, and often take it very personally, do ask them in the first few days what their favourite biscuit is and maybe have a couple stashed in your drawer for emergencies. Emergency. The other one, of course, that you, you mentioned earlier and is, is an important one to talk about is sleep. Um, so, we know that teachers get up extraordinarily early. The majority of teachers are up before uh, 6.30 a.m. and definitely before 7 a.m. They get to work incredibly early. Again, the majority in before 7.30 a.m. It's not a job where you can be late. You don't want to chance it. So you don't travel at, at, at at prime time or rush hour. And that means that you get there very early. Unfortunately, teachers also go to bed quite late. On any given night when we ask, you know, over 45% of teachers will have marked exercise books in front of the television. And then they will go to bed somewhere between 10pm and 11pm. Well, that's usually only giving you, if you, if you're very good at falling asleep, you're only going to be getting around six hours, seven hours maximum, which might be okay for you, but might not. 
given that most people don't have amazing quality sleep straight off the bat, actually the quality isn't going to be high. And then think through that whole day. You get up at 5.30 a.m., you might travel for up to an hour, you're in school early, you set your classroom up, you do six lessons. In the middle of it, you try and grab some lunch, you get your tea from the tea lady. Now more people are running around their classrooms. So I'm seeing more teachers saying they're doing 23,000 steps a day. So loads of people comparing on Friday. I mean, they're, they're running kilometers at the moment. It's like, you know, go to teach, lose weight. So they're running around school. On any given day, they're likely to have some kind of after-school meeting. If that's not a staff meeting or a department meeting, it might be with a parent or with a colleague or a mentoring meeting or organizing a trip. You then go home, you make tea, you start marking books at 8.30, you have that glass of wine to calm yourself down, and then it's bedtime. And again, on weekends, around half of teachers will work at some point on the weekend. Many of them do over seven hours of marking per week. That's nearly an extra day. And on things like emails, another five or six hours, that's almost a teaching day. And it's almost like indentured servitude by the end. I mean, I know you're getting paid, but ultimately it's a very, very, very long period of time to be working. And it doesn't give teachers the ability to have hobbies to develop meaningful relationships with that with people outside of schools, to keep up identities outside of school, which can be very important when you're struggling or having conflict in your work that you can fall back on, well, I'm good at these other things or these other things also matter to me. Um, so I worry about sleep and then I worry about it lumped in between very, very long, overly packed days. And Becky, my co-founder, and I have talked a lot about what would it take to have people work from, if you're going to be there at 7.30, be able to leave at 4.30. That, that's got to be realistic. And if it's not realistic, then, then there are consequences and we have to face up to the consequences, which is the turnover. Exactly. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And, and the, I've, I've spoken to several retired heads recently or, or people that have left the profession and are working in different areas. And they've said, I wish I knew this when I was teaching. I wish I did this when I was teaching or, or as a school leader. Uh, all of these initiatives that are coming out about well-being, but people that are in them in school now, and I've talked to a lot of heads recently, just don't have time to do these things that you just described that I'm trying to encourage people to do. Just take five minutes, just take half an hour on the week and just do these things, fit them in. But when you're in it, it just seems so difficult. And the retired colleagues or the colleagues that have left are saying, please, 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 uh, please do this because I wish I had. I might not have left if I had. So that's the message that we've really desperately got to get through to people, hopefully, who are listening to this. Um, just make that time. There's lots and lots of information about how to reduce marking workload, planning workload. I, I did a podcast last week with Ross McGill and he, the Teacher Toolkit, was talking a lot about how to reduce workload there. Do you have any insights there, Laura, on how to reduce workload? As you say, there's lots and lots of resources, but I, I think in the end it is it is a psychological decision and um, often we do it as well. Look, we, we work really hard because we like it. Teachers love their jobs. They enjoyed being in school, even in a pandemic, even when it was horrible. They enjoy being in there. And, you know, when I was working through this, um, when I worked in schools, I worked long hours and I still work long hours. I love my work. But 
Um, a few years ago, I was very sick. So in 2017, I had a, an infection called sepsis, which is life-threatening, kills about a third of people, leaves a third with life-threatening injuries, and a third survived completely intact. And I was one of those, very lucky, can affect you at any age. Um, but it left me at the time with some kidney problems. And I didn't, I, I didn't want to have to keep going to the doctors. I was, I was like, I've got so much work on. I was the editor of Schools Week. I was like, I just don't have time for this. And I remember this nurse just said to me, that's fine that's no problem. You walk away, but you are not going to have time for dialysis. And now where every single day where you have to come to the hospital and sit on a machine, and that's what's going to happen if you don't stop now. So you can make your decision. Do you want to come for your kidney appointments now, or do you want to do it for the rest of your life? Yeah. And in that moment, I realized what I was facing up against. And a few years ago, I did a BBC documentary with a guy who had done the cover every morning in school. And it had kept him up at night. He'd been stressing about it, but he'd carried on because he loved his work. And then he had a heart attack and he nearly died. And he sat there in a hospital looking at his children. And he thought, you know, it's not that you have to stop everything, but you have to make some decisions because enjoying this stuff is great, but you are curtailing your ability to enjoy it. You won't be able to do it for as long. You won't be able to be around for the people that you love. You may not get to do other stuff later. We have a finite amount of life, a finite amount of energy, and we have to decide where it goes. And that currency calculator of our energy is what matters. So if somebody wants to burn themselves up and be a workaholic, knock yourself out as far as I'm concerned. I had a choice. I could have not done my kidney operations and then been fine and, and, you know, carried on with the newspaper, but it was at the cost of the rest of my life. So, so, and everything else, really, every how-to of workload starts with that decision. Because until you care and you want to reduce your workload, it doesn't really matter. But if you don't, you are probably going to be at least five or 10 years less in this profession, if not more. Yeah. And I, have absolute personal experience of that. I have six siblings, four of them are teachers. I say four are teachers, four were teachers, three left. My younger brother had a massive heart attack before the age of 50 mm -hmm. and left. He just quit, retired, not going back. And so this is real. We're not talking about, you know, scented candles and bubble baths. We're talking about really serious stuff here. And if you think that you can just go on and on and on and it just be all fine. It's not fine. Three of my own siblings have left the profession because of stress-related, very serious health issues. And they've left hard, walked away. That's the issue. Exactly. Um, this guy with the heart attack, thankfully, he he then went back part-time and he was super embarrassed. You know, he's kind of 55-year-old, big guy, northern, um, part-time because of my ill health that's that's like hard work to accept but you know he said what I realize now is had I done this years ago I could have been four days a week for 20 years and instead I was looking down the barrel of just having to walk away and been zero days a week for however many years left and so yeah I really felt for him yeah yeah for sure for sure it's our identities become so linked to our work and that's, you know, as you said, there's a big psychological question behind that. Laura, you said um, to look at opportunities for networking with like-minded people. Is that across teacher tap? Is that, tell us more about how you see that. Um, I also, well, so this is less around the, the head teachers and the leadership. I think particularly at the start of people's career, we lose a lot of people in the first five years. 
Now, that's not for the same reasons that you tend to lose people later on. So what we know is that at the beginning, behavior is really problematic. Um, people can tell you it's not personal, but it feels pretty personal when a kid is yelling in your face. Um, and, and children have a way of knowing exactly what to say, which thing you're worried about to, to go at you. So behavior is a problem. And then I think there's a few years where people, um, particularly in middle middle management, they do have a lot of workload, but that workload can also feel quite pointless. If you're in a school where either you don't agree with people, the values are conflicting with yours. And what we've seen time and time again is teachers, especially with limited experiences in schools, they think all of teaching is the problem. They don't suit being a teacher. When in fact, it might be that this particular school and this particular set of staff just have slightly different values to you or are interested in different things. But there's many parts of the teaching job. We often ask people, um, what's, in fact, I think we've just asked it again. I've not quite got the results yet around what's the part of the job that you love the most. And only 8% pick lesson planning. But for that 8%, that's really important. And actually, if they could find a job where they maybe work for a local authority or a multi-academy trust where they're doing more of the lesson planning, where they're going in and working as a curriculum advisor, that could be the right role for them. If you're somebody who's very into research and actually you like all decisions to be very scientific, then you're going to be better off working with a head teacher who's into research ed, part of teaching schools alliances and leads in that way than you are in a school which is very, very focused, for example, perhaps on um, the community and inclusiveness, which, you know, I think there are just different personalities. And yes, we have to be a professional. Yes, we have to be working in lots of different environments. But sometimes I think it's important for teachers to get out beyond where they are, mix in different networks. In the past, you do that in conferences. Now there's lots of online webinars that you can do the same thing. Find the social media that you like. Use it, you know, sparsely at first if necessary. But, but if you can find other like-minded people, that's going to remind you that teaching isn't one job. There isn't one way to do it. And if the way that you're doing it at the moment doesn't suit you, please don't think that means all of teaching is a disaster. It might just be that there's, you know, a different lid for your pot somewhere else. That's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, fantastic. And and it's about being honest about reality for you. Mm-hmm. What, as you described, if you're a more research-driven type person, if you're a more that community type person, then what floats your boat and and teachers are really different to one another um it's it's kind of I guess after three and a half years, I'm more used to it now. But when the results come back, we often get what we call a Christmas tree finding. So it's where the results are very evenly split and it kind of looks like the shape almost of a, of a green Christmas tree because a few people strongly agree, you know, just green neutral. And, but you realize that they're very even as many people agree as disagree. Um, and we often ask even simple things. Would you rather have two week half term in October and five weeks in the summer? And you'll find people dead split down the middle. So we, we can't possibly expect every setting to cover every type of person. The diversity really matters, but also there are there are little tribes, if you like, within education. And I mean that as sort of small groups of communities who um can be open to others but if you can find the people that you work best with then it's worth trying to seek them out yeah yeah 
For sure. And Laura, what do you do just as we start to wrap up? What do you do to take care of your well-being on a, on a daily basis or a regular basis? So we've talked already a bit about sleep. This is why I'm so fascinated by your book. So I need to get hands on that when it's out. <laughs> yeah, um, I, so I'm a big sleep advocate. I'm lucky. I've always been a really good sleeper, even in the most difficult periods of my life. I've been able to hit the pillow at 11 o'clock and wake up at seven and be good to go. In part, though, I think um, I had a family that were very regimented on this. My mom sleeps a lot to this day. Um, And it meant that after 10 o'clock in the house, we had to be completely silent. So I couldn't watch television. I couldn't play computer games. Of course, there weren't phones back then either. But if there had been, I'm sure she'd have made me lock it in a box somewhere because she really believed in sleep. And so when people say I'm bad at sleeping, you know, actually, do you go to bed at the same time? Is your house silent? Do you have access to anything? Because by and large, I can tell you, as someone who didn't find sleep that easy when I was seven, after a year or two of that relentlessness, um, you just get good at it. So that's been the thing for me. Everything else, you know, food I kind of struggle with and exercise I'll do. I do do it almost every day, actually exercise, but I hate it. I can't say I love it. And then drinking water is like this endless battle, isn't it? But it's one of the really important ones. I sort of feel like at some point it should be done. Like, when am I going to have drunk enough water that I don't have to keep drinking more? But they tell me the answer is never. So I'm going to have to get over that at some point. But if you did all of those, if you drink water, you eat well, you exercise and you sleep, your life will always be better. Yeah, for sure. sure. It's just irritating that those are the four not very fun things that you have to do, isn't it? Well, I, oh, I could talk. Well, this is what I talk about. I literally do talk about this all day long. <laughs> but to your point about sleep, most sleep issues can be resolved by changing something in the, the behaviours and habits in your day. You know, it is not rocket science. Of course, for some people, there are times in life where, you know, something has tipped and you might need some support. You might need to see a doctor or you might have a condition like sleep apnea, for example. But the vast majority who have difficulty sleeping, it's because of something that they're doing throughout their day that they could do a little bit different, tiny little tweaks through their daily habits that will really make a difference to the quality and quantity of their sleep. My point about exercise is that choose something that you do like. Um, I really am an advocate for movement in helping um, move the stress hormones through our body because they can linger in our body for a really long time, up to eight hours. So that's why some people find it difficult to sleep. That's because we have so much of these. And there's hundreds and hundreds of hormones in our body that affect our sleep, not just cortisol and adrenaline. So I would recommend exercise. So find something that you enjoy. I can see drums behind you. Maybe there's something. <laughs> yeah, that's um, my my drums are the thing on my fitness tracker. The drums are the thing that put my heart rate the highest. Yeah. I was really, really surprised at how much good exercise it is. Um, I also have to say, when once I was sick in 2017, I had to start exercising properly. And I, I did take all of this stuff and do take this stuff much more seriously. Mm. And um, what I've done ever since then is I do a workout as soon as I get up using a little app on my phone. And I just, I have to do seven minutes. Even this morning, I was quite late getting up this morning, which was unusual, but I still did just seven minutes. Yeah. Now I usually do about 20 to 25 minutes because I've got so used to it and it's, it's almost too easy. But just seven, I do it in my pajamas, yeah. in my bedroom, because um, I, I hate gyms. I'm not interested. Okay. But 
it, it really makes a difference. I hate that it makes a difference as well. I want to be one of these people who's all like exercise, whatever. Um, and, and I don't feel great at the end. I don't. The, this idea that you're going to feel amazing when you've exercised. Mostly I'm angry the entire seven minutes. Um, and at the end, I am cheesed off. But it is better for my joints. It is better for me. And it does keep me healthier. So just got to do it, only sometimes. You just do. I I do. I have a little workout that I do in less than four minutes, but I walk. I do. I'm a big walker, but I do have a little routine that I do really quickly as well. But it's these little micro things. It's these small habits we can do every day. They actually really do build up to have a massive impact on our well-being. The story for that one as well, very brief, is that um, the reason I started it was because I asked a surgeon friend of mine after I'd been ill. Um, what predicted when she did surgery on people, what predicted whether or not the operation would work or that the recovery would, you know, would be successful. And she said uh, straight away, it's really how active you are. And that's true all the rest of your life, whatever the operation is. If you are a person who is typically exercising and active, it will just mean that your body is much better at healing itself. And also um, you'll be more more physically um, strong. And so I've just always bear that in mind, you know, um, if I'm probably going to have to have a hip operation or something, because I wear heels all the time, then uh, I need to make sure that I've kept the joints subtle. It's all payoffs in life, isn't it? You know, if I wear heels, then I have to make sure I do my exercise every day. If you're if you're going to run around to school all day with high stress, you've got to make sure that you get your sleep. Um, it's all trade-offs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Laura, I've been speaking, uh, I've been speaking with Laura McInerney. You can connect with Laura on Twitter at Miss underscore McInerney. Her website is teachertap.co.uk. And can I ask, is, is, are you still inviting people to join or is yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Yep, it's free. Download it, Teach Tap. You find it in the App Store, Android Play Store. Uh, those are the only two places that you can get it, but yeah. They're free, both of them. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. Now check out our website, pursuitwellbeing.com. If you enjoyed the podcast, please hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And if you feel inspired, please rate and review it and share it with your friends. I love getting your feedback and learning how we can improve our program.